This is Climate Positive, a show featuring candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. And I'm Gil Jenkins. What we're saying in the book is we have to get out of the mindset of thinking that we're solving this problem just by being green consumers, even though that is important. We're only going to solve it by acting in a political sense to get in the faces of all the people making these decisions by inertia and kind of shaking their lapels and saying we need to start making different decisions and we need to be in a hurry about it. Our guests this week are Justin Gillis and Hal Harvey, co-authors of the new book, The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet. In their book, Justin and Hal offer an everyday citizen's guide to the essential changes our communities must enact to bring GHG emissions down to zero. Justin Gillis is a former award-winning reporter for the New York Times, where he covered climate change for over a decade. Hal Harvey is an acclaimed energy policy advisor and the CEO of the San Francisco-based NGO, Energy Innovation. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan energy and climate policy shop that delivers research and analysis to help policymakers make informed choices. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Justin and Hal. Hal and Justin, thank you for joining us on Climate Positive. Absolutely. We're delighted to be here. So the theme of your new book, The Big Fix, I think is really about this idea that those of us who are climate conscious need to move from just being green consumers, you know, a smart thermostat, LED bulbs, maybe buying an electric car, putting solar on our roof, but really shifting and waking people up to this mindset of being green citizens, which you know really resonated with me in, in terms of practical things we can do to engage in this climate fight. Could you expand a bit on on the theme as as I understand it for our listeners? We have to transform some really big systems, our transportation system, the buildings we live in, the industries of the power of the country, and so forth. And that requires great technology, lots of blue-collar and white-collar skills. It requires capital. But fundamentally, it requires a political decision to make the transformation happen. We have the technologies, they're affordable, they're in fact cheaper now than the fossil age needs to be. But that doesn't mean it happens automatically. There are deeply embedded incumbent interests who fight for market share. And against that, we have to have a political force that meets and then exceeds the resistance. The second part of this, and I won't go on too long, is that you have to choose very carefully how to influence each of these sectors. Because the strategy for accelerating the transformation to electric vehicles is quite different from the one that insists that new buildings be built with the latest and best insulation and heat control technologies. So you need to dig into the particulars of each sector to understand where the change can happen. When you do that, it's incredibly empowering and it's incredibly effective. Justin? Yeah, we are up here against the what I would call the power of human inertia. Not just, you know, as Hal mentioned, the incumbent interests, which are powerful and have been sort of lying, really, to the American public about the risk we face. But on top of that, there's this this just human inertia. So all over the country, people are making decisions on a daily basis to perpetuate the fossil fuel economy without really thinking about it, because that's what they've always done. So school boards uh, every year are making decisions to keep buying diesel buses, even though electric buses have become available. City governments and county governments are making decisions to top up their car fleets for their employees with gasoline-burning cars, even though electric cars have become available. Uh, Builders are making decisions to put gas appliances and gas heat and such into buildings, even though they don't have to do that, and the smart climate choice would be to not do that. And the public at large is sort of, you know, people buy houses and they fail to ask this question, you know, why is there gas in this house? There didn't need to be. So what we're saying in the book is we have to get out of the mindset of thinking that we're solving this problem just by being green consumers, even though that is important. We're only going to solve it by acting in a political sense to get in the faces of all the people making these decisions by default, by inertia, and kind of shaking their lapels and saying, we need, to make, we need to start making different decisions and we need to be in a hurry about it. Absolutely. You know, you alluded, both of you, to some of the different sectors and 
practical, I want to emphasize the word practical ways people get involved in what may seem like a confusing and esoteric um, aspects of how we do climate and energy policy in this country. So could you talk about a little bit more about sort of these three sectors or, or territories, which are themselves levers for decarbonization. We talked about battery electric buses and parents getting involved at their school board. Hal, I want you to talk about the importance of building codes and how that works. And and also, I don't know that I've any read anything so eloquent and direct on the importance and the practicality of engaging with public utility commissions, which you know are, are so influential. So I want to talk to you about that as well. Well, let me start with buildings. If you build a great building, it requires almost zero electricity or energy. My house, which is not a fantastic example, generates more energy than I use. So I get negative bills from my utility. They pay me every month to be their customer. How does that happen? How did it happen? If you look at the history of buildings, in the old days, they used to burn down. You remember the Chicago Fire? I mean, we don't actually remember, but we know of the Chicago Fire. Buildings used to collapse in earthquakes quite frequently. They still do in countries without strong building codes. Modern sanitation systems, modern heat. There's a lot of decisions that go into a building. Some of those decisions can foreclose a green building, and some of those decisions, in effect, insist on a green building. What kind of windows do you have? What kind of insulation do you have? Which way is appointed? Do you have an overhang that shades your south-facing window in the summer months but allows sunshine in in the winter months? All these choices are going to determine for a century or so the amount of fossil fuel that gets burned from your building. With new technologies, really fancy window coatings that are invisible, you don't know they're there, You can turn a window into a heater in Minneapolis. You can turn it into a cooler in Arizona with these specialized coatings, for example. Good insulation means that you're just spending a lot less on both heating and cooling. So some states and some countries have taken the building code question seriously and say, how do we use it to make sure that every building built is an outstanding energy performer? The Nordic countries have done this. Germany has done this. California has done this. In California... The post-code buildings use 80% less energy than the pre-code buildings. This was under wow. when Jerry Brown was... Title 24, I think. Transformation. Yeah. yeah. It was passed into law when Jerry Brown was the youngest governor in California's history. He signed it into law. It had a fantastic clause in it. And we need to learn from this clause, which says every three years it gets tighter. And how much tighter depends on technologies that pay for themselves in energy savings. So we've gone through a bunch of Republican governors, a bunch of Democratic governors in the decades since then, and every three years, the code got tighter. So now you're down 80% in terms of your energy consumed. Well, since then, they said every single family home has to have solar PV on the roof. So we're going to make climate positive buildings with that change. So who writes the building code? What considerations do they make? Why are most building codes in America lagging by a couple decades compared to where they should be? Why do they fail to insist on the newest, best technology? Those are questions any citizen can ask of their government. You can go find out. It'll take you about three hours work to research building codes. You don't have to know the answer to every technical detail. You have to know, are you using an old code or a new code? Are you using a weak code or a strong code? And with that, you go into your local building code office or go to the mayor and say, do you have any idea how much money we're wasting by failing to properly insulate buildings in this state or this city. It opens the door to large-scale change accessible by a handful of people. Awesome. Justin, you were talking about buses. Could you share the story from the book about the kids in Montgomery County where I live? And, you know, I just knew about the policy and seeing the headlines recently as that project on electric school bus comes out. Talk about that local action and how that could be a model. I mean, Montgomery County is interesting. It's one of the most, the wealthiest and most diverse counties in the country. But do you, tell me about where that's applicable across the socioeconomic spectrum and sharing lessons from what happened in Montgomery County. Yeah. You know, Montgomery County is actually one of those places, and there are now thousands of, of towns across America and, and counties that declared a climate emergency a few years ago. 
So a bunch of people declaring climate emergencies and then essentially doing nothing. They never had a plan, you know, for what to do to sort of make those words real. And some citizens of Montgomery County, including kids, teenagers, picked up on that and sort of got mad about it, you know, and, and realized, uh, I sometimes say hypocrisy is the great American sin, right? They sort of realized the hypocrisy of, you know, declaring a climate emergency and then doing nothing. And so um, there were marches in the streets. These kids, they were, they, were kid, they were both kids and adults. You know, it was a coalition of people who stopped traffic, went and got in front of the school board and pleaded meeting after meeting after meeting. And finally, now, one, one of the big hurdles, and we should mention this, is the electric buses are still two to three times more expensive on first cost than the diesel buses. So you can see why a school board would hesitate, and they're not crazy to hesitate, right? But what you realize when you look closely at the economics is the operating costs are so much lower with the electrics that you can equalize that out over time. And in fact, in this deal that Montgomery County eventually cut, I mean, they're probably going to wind up saving money ultimately because they basically came up with a deal to lease the buses and yeah. sort of capture that cost savings on the back end from the, from the operating cost. And in addition to that, uh, the batteries in these buses will actually be selling power back into the electric grid a few times a year when prices are really high. So, you know, we sometimes get these stressed moments on the grid and prices are really high. That's part of the what people call the value stack here, the value proposition. So when you do the deal right, it becomes possible to do it. To your question about getting this done in poor communities, and, you know, let's be honest, I mean, richer communities should lead the way. They are the people yeah. right now who can afford electric buses. If they go first, that will help to scale them up and lower the cost and, you know, buy them down the learning curve, as we say, and, and make them cheaper. But it's also true that a huge amount of federal money for electric buses, you know, grants for electric buses was... Billions. Was, yeah, billions. Was put into these climate bills that, that uh, the Biden administration recently got passed. And so uh, there's now an opportunity for even poorer school districts to get awarded grants and to go after electric buses. And, you know, they may need to start small, you know, start with 20 of them, not 200 as Montgomery County did. But, you know, the opportunity is there. And our, our real point is school boards need to be making a plan here. Even if you can't do it right away, what is your plan? What is your timeline for converting? And parents need to go get in the faces of the school board. If you have a kid with asthma or you know of kids with asthma, the, the diesel buses are, are a culprit, right? They are directly responsible yeah. for exposing. I mean, we have, we have research that shows, you know, that kids riding diesel buses to school are more likely to have asthma attacks. And so anyway, there's just a huge opportunity. People don't think of their school board as a venue for climate action, but it is. And school boards are responsive to parents, right? Parents need to go down and, and make this case and the, and the kids too and say, what are we doing here? We need a plan. Yeah, and, it, and it's not just new shiny buses and challenges of getting the constraints. It's you know this retrofit market for electric buses is, is fascinating. Something we're looking at as an investment firm, and it's like a third of the cost to change a diesel bus versus a new electric bus. And the financing models are there because of that value stacks. And certainly the narrative and the storytelling around what electric school buses mean as a symbolic um, nature. I, I love the focus on that. But let's talk about public utility commissions and PUCs. I think our, our audience have pretty good sense, but can you demystify that a bit and the stories that you share in your book about successful green citizen engagement efforts to drive clean power generation decisions at the public utility commission level? Sure thing. We should um, pick up the thread on buses a little bit because they, it, it goes much further than school yeah, buses. Uh, corporate fleets and, and, and alike, absolutely. Can I riff on that for one minute? Yeah, please. So I've spent a fair bit of time in a city called Shenzhen in China. It's a newish city. It's about 10 or 12 million people. Every single bus in Shenzhen is electric. That's 18,000 buses. Every single taxi in Shenzhen is electric. Every single delivery truck in Shenzhen is electric. And every single one of their car sharing or their, their answer to Uber, which is called Didi, is electric. Now, Shenzhen is a rich city by Chinese standards, but it would be a poor city by American standards. And they figured out they could do this. 
So when you walk around Shenzhen, in contrast to many cities in China, the air is clean and it's quiet. There's humming noises. Maintenance on the buses goes down dramatically because maintenance is, is driven by moving parts. An electric motor has four wheels and one motor. <laughs> and by vibration, vibration kills vehicles. And if everyone knows that buses vibrate like crazy, but electric buses don't because they don't have that internal combustion engine rattling away. So if Shenzhen can do it, why on earth would any American city fail to do it? We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We have to do it. And, and we need to think in terms of that kind of scale. Tens of thousands rather than Can hundreds. I just point out also, I mean, we have, the last time I tried to count, we had more than 50 factories under construction in the United States to build batteries for electric cars and buses and other vehicles. So in my home state of Georgia, people are already talking about 20, 30, 40,000 jobs doing yeah. this work just in one state. And we are way behind China, right? I mean, the Chinese are just very far ahead of us on the electrification of, I mean, so is Europe. Uh, you know, Norway is at 80 plus percent market share on electric cars. It's essentially gone entirely over. So, you know, the United States is lagging here as we, as we so often do in these recent decades on, you know, important technological trends. And, and we just have to get off the stick here and, or get on the stick, I guess, and, and go faster. Well, I'm going to come back to sort of IRA later in the conversation, what those manufacturing incentives and, and battery specific incentives will do to, to catch up on that great race. But uh, quickly on the PUCs, Hal or Justin, do you want to take that? So 40% of the carbon in the U.S. economy goes through monopoly pipes and wires, pipes for natural gas and wires for electricity, of course. Because they're monopolies, they have to fall under public regulation. Otherwise, they could be subject to abusive pricing. That means they are controlled by, they're guided by, and they're actually controlled by public utilities commissions in each of the 50 states. Now, if you ever want to put somebody to sleep, mention those three words in a row, public utilities commissions. <laughs> I know, but so important. There's several hundred people that are essential for driving real energy policy in this country. It's, right? it's kind of staggering. Yeah. There's typically five commissioners per state, and they decide where your money goes when you write your utility bill check every month. So they decide whether it goes to coal or to solar. Um, they decide whether the utility can be a leader in putting in charging stations or not. They decide whether you get a hookup for free or subsidized for natural gas into your home or whether you go electric and so forth. And what's interesting about public utilities commissions is that word public. They're supposed to serve you and other members of the public. And serve means to make sure you have reliable and affordable supplies of energy. But it also means that they don't poison the rivers or foul the air or cook the atmosphere. And so if you want to do something about climate change, it's a fantastic opportunity great target for your efforts. So how does it work? They operate in a quasi-judicial form. It's almost like a court hearing where they take evidence and they consider it against their statutory duties and they make decisions about billions and billions of dollars per year where the money lands. They are required by statute to listen to the public. So you can make a statement, you can enter a letter into the record and they have to react to these statements or letters. So if you're a utility regulatory expert, this is your bread and butter. If you're not, it can seem daunting. But here's the thing. You don't have to argue in the legal patois of the lawyers and the regulatory experts. You can speak in stark, simple terms about what has to happen. You can bring in your kid that has asthma, or you can organize 50 moms and dads to bring in their kids who have asthma. And you can put them in front of the Public Utilities Commission and you can say, why? Are you forcing these kids to breathe foul air? You can say, why don't you accelerate the transition, especially since now brand new solar is cheaper than paying just the existing costs, operating costs of coal fired power plants. So you can save money and save kids at the same time. What's up? That's a powerful sentence. That's a headline grabber in the newspaper that uttered by a parent or anybody who cares about children is a political statement. That's what we have to do. We have to start insisting that these representative bodies, these regulatory bodies, put the entire public interest first, including the environmental aspects. And it's a fight, right, because of the political and grain monopolies. And I, we don't have to go into the scandals of some recently unless you want to. Um, well, people should it's an uphill know, battle. People but should, they should know, right? People should know that in a lot of states, 
the local utilities are the biggest contributors to state politics. They're buying your politicians with campaign contributions. Uh, and by the way, those utilities are heavily invested in fossil. And even though, as Hal says, clean energy is now cheaper, they've got sunk costs in fossil and they want to keep making money on their fossil investments. And so they fight, you know, they're dragging their feet on the transition pretty much all over the country. And, you know, unless the public speaks up, you know, louder, that's going to continue to happen. We have to get in there and sort of shake these commissioners and say, we want you to move. So, Justin, you're a storyteller first. And um, by your background, I think a true newspaper man. And how I think it's fair to say you're a bit of a policy wonk. And aren't you an engineer by training? I am. What's it like teaming up on a book and not to be overly stereotypical and sort of harmonizing your styles and interests? And how that's not to say you're not a good communicator either, just because you're an engineer and a policy wonk. I I think you are, but I I have to just frame it that way and react to bringing those styles together. Because that's what I think is so interesting about your book is that it has the practical way, but the compelling journalism that only comes with with a true journalist of your experience, Justin. To some extent, I sort of resist this question because because the real truth is this was a this was a, a complete collaboration, right? I mean, so Hal was like a source, right? I mean, you met Hal as a source. Hal was originally a source, you know. For you know, ten years, I kind of was listening to all the people I I met talk who were talking about this problem, and you know, this one guy kept making more sense than anybody else, and <laughs> and the real reason was. I mean, I'd meet economists and, and I'd get this line about, you know, a carbon tax being the one true policy and nothing else will ever work. And, you know, you'd meet technology evangelists, right? You know, whether solar or wind or, or, or geothermal or lots of other things, you know, or, or the, I mean, the worst, of course, are the nuclear nuts who think they have got the only, <laughs> the only conceivable solution to this. And, and, you know, here was how like talking about, you know, how the economy actually works. Right. How politics actually works. Yeah. Right. All these, all these systems that determine, like, you know, the building codes are an example. I knew about the importance of building codes from having lived through Hurricane Andrew in Florida. And, you know, we put this in the book, actually. You know, the night Hurricane Andrew hit in 1992, people lived or died, depending on how well their builder had followed the local building code. And a lot of builders had not, right? And so we had, we had neighborhoods in Miami where, on one side of the street, everything collapsed. And on the other side of the street, every building stood up, right? And so that told me something is really going on here with, you know, ethics and economics, right? And anyway, that's all a long way of saying that, you know, how was the guy who was talking about these systems as they exist in the real world and how we might tweak them? And, and yeah, I guess what I brought into it was a bit of the political frame. Well, if we're, if we're going to tweak them, you know, how do we get more citizens, you know, lined up behind us to sort of push for that? And so, you know, it isn't like how like typed out the bullet points and I sort of turned it into copy. It didn't work <laughs> that way. I mean, it really was, a, it really was, this book is a true blend and sort of brainstorm of our, our mutual ideas, I would say. Justin also has a couple habits that are quite important uh, in this. He doesn't take anybody's word for anything. That's why he's a newspaper. That's why I said newspaper man, Justin, a true yeah. muckraker. He digs in and whenever I make an assertion, he says, okay, Harvey, back it up. And the other thing he does, which I do not do well, is tell stories. And I don't mean that in a fantastical sense. I mean, he digs into what happened at the PUC hearing. Who, who, who was motivated? Why were they motivated? What were the results? And he goes to, he goes to the source every time. And that gives the book a measure of, what should I say, honesty and depth. Okay, so on, on the stories, Justin, if you had to pick, you know, one darling narrative that moved you about citizen engagement, is there one story in the book or one person that really blew you away? I really like the tale we have at the end from a town in West Virginia where the local church put solar panels on their roof and the people that were involved in setting that up, Dan Hitt and his wife, Marianne Hitt, put solar panels on their roofs. And he actually walked me out behind his house and up and down the alley. And you could see where seven or eight neighbors had copied him. He was the first person awesome. to put up solar panels and then a bunch of other people did it. And 
One of the things about this whole issue is there's real potential here for sort of engagement with your neighbors. I think people are still a little reluctant to do this, but when you buy an electric car, you know, give your neighbor a ride in it. People ride in them and they quickly become converted because it's a superior experience, right? When you put solar panels on the roof, have a little party and tell your neighbors how you did it and, you know, what how the economics worked out and and so forth. So I just, I love the West Virginia thing because of the, you know, the way it just sort of went a little bit viral and, uh, and it's West Virginia, right? You know, not a place yeah. you would think of as, you know, a hotbed of clean energy, but actually there's a company there called Solar Holler that is putting up solar panels all over the state of West Virginia. So it can be done. And there's not that much mystery about what we need to do here. I, you know, people right. do need to understand where these levers are and they need to understand how they can exercise their democratic voice to kind of pull those levers. But, you know, it's, it's straightforward politics. It's make a demand, you know, get in their faces and stop them from operating on inertia, right? Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions for over 30 years. To learn more about our Climate Positive journey, please visit HannonArmstrong.com. This book is also full of great charts and, and data points, you know, a lot from your terrific team at Energy Innovation. Do you have a favorite chart in the book that really tells the story? I would have littered the book with charts instead of <laughs> just a few if it was my druthers. But cost curves, how fast the price of things drop as you build more of them. I mean, this is the magic that runs all the way through the book is in the old days, solar was expensive. It's now it's dropped 90% in price in the last decade. So it's cheaper than the alternative. And you can say that about electric vehicles, batteries, LED lights, uh, solar systems on your roof, wind turbines, offshore wind is happening now. The magic of driving prices down through specific policy is something that most policymakers, even when they do it, they don't necessarily know they're doing it, right? They think we're just subsidizing solar. You're not subsidizing solar. You're creating a cost-effective option. Yep. I think a lot of people, even who are pretty pretty deep into the subject, they didn't really know that whole history on sort of learning curves and how rights law came about, which is chapter one of our yeah. book. So um, I think that chapter has been revelatory for a lot of people just to sort of know the deeper history of the, the principle they're relying on, right, to make these technologies cost competitive. And, you know, as the book came out, this amazing study from Oxford also came out showing 50 different learning curves for 50 different energy technologies and doing really statistically sound predictions of where they might go. So we got this major substantive boost that's in parallel with the release of the book. Well, what I like about this book, too, is it's not just for the everyday citizen, although that's important, but I think I've heard you talk about this being a message for the ENGO community that has done a good job sort of inspiring people to be against stuff, you know, shut down pipelines and so forth. But I would submit, and, and maybe you agree or want to push back, that a lot of these well-resourced ENGOs haven't necessarily gotten into the minutiae of pushing uh, and organizing on a grassroots server for these sort of practical and impactful solutions on the things we're for. It's true that environmental groups are born into a resistance mode, right? They're trying to save some land for the critters, for nature. They're trying to save some clean air and save some clean water. And I sympathize completely with them, would call myself an uh, environmentalist, somebody who wants my kids to see and enjoy what I got to see and enjoy. It's hard constitutionally then to come out and say, well, we're in favor of building this big power line, or we need to mine some lithium in order to make the electric car batteries. And yet, that's exactly what we need to do. Now, the approach I prefer is um, not to relax environmental standards one iota, but to process them much more quickly and to pre-zone where possible. So if you want to zone along an interstate highway corridor to put up wind towers or a transmission line, great. You're going to get your permit in 90 days. If you want to put it near a wilderness study area, forget it. That's red zone. So we need to start thinking in advance of how to do some large-scale infrastructure without harming the environment. And it has to be done by men and women of goodwill that understand both sides of this issue, uh, or at least are represented by both sides of this issue. If you just say no 
to every construction project, you're just saying yes to massive global climate change. It's interesting. Europe is having this exact same discussion right now. In response to their energy crisis, you know, precipitated, of course, by the war in Ukraine, they are trying to greatly speed up their rollout of, of clean energy. And, you know, in Europe, as in the United States, these projects are taking eight, nine, 10 years to get approved. And it's just too long. I mean, we have to, Europe needs, and really the United States needs to build, you know, four times as much renewable energy as we have by 2030. So in the next seven years. Annually, (laughs) right, by 20, yeah. And we're just not going to be able to do that if projects are taking 10 years to get approved. And so what I would say to the environmental community is, you have got to be for something here, not just against something. And we've got to also make our peace with, you know, yes, we want to keep environmental standards, but we've got to figure out how to speed this up and make things go faster or we're simply not going to get it done. So, Justin, I, I want to turn a little bit back to your bio. I was a great fan of, uh, I think I must have become familiar with your writing in the tens at the Times. But could you tell us, how you got involved in environmental reporting. And I think you've talked about this uh, profound moment you had uh, on a beach in Florida, which really, really hit you on what was happening with the climate. Maybe start there. Yeah, that goes back to the 80s. I could probably take you to the, the spot on, the, on Fort Lauderdale Beach where a scientist first told me that the ocean was rising. And, you know, that that's why the beach was eroding so rapidly. And that's why the government was spending many millions, tens of millions to sort of pump sand up onto the beach. And, you know, that set me off on a quest. I was sort of, I guess, an aspiring science reporter even then, although my job was covering local governments. But, you know, I've been trying to understand it ever since, essentially. It's true that for the longest time I was not doing climate professionally. That really happened in the early aughts, I was sitting in a class at Harvard. I, I did a fellowship up at MIT and was auditing a class at Harvard uh, taught by a fellow named Dan Strack. And I sort of remember the moment where a kid in the class from Orlando said, so, the class was called The History of the Earth, but toward the end of it, Dan talked about the future of the Earth, right? And, and uh, this kid from Orlando said, so what happens to where I'm from? And Dan looks up and says, I think you're going to be waving at the fishes, you know, eventually in the long run. And basically, I wound up getting involved in climate reporting out of sheer frustration, right? Back then, as you'll remember, it was being done very badly by most publications. My newspaper at the time, the Washington Post, wasn't really doing it at all. The Times was doing it, but, you know, with only one or two people. And so there's this old saying in the in the newspaper business that if you complain about coverage, you know, long enough, they make you do it, right? So that's more <laughs> more or less what happened to me is I sort of complained long and hard enough about the lack of coverage of climate. And and you know, it was a great opportunity. Like I, I was actually editing at the times when the the old Andy Refkin job opened up and and somebody recruited me into that job. I took a pay cut to go to go into climate reporting. But I did that because I thought it was so important. And I mean, I'm glad to say here we are, you know, 15 years later, and the the coverage has just improved enormously, right? You know, both at the Times and many other publications. You know, we don't have, you know, climate deniers all over the airwaves anymore telling lies, you know, the way we used to. And And it's just, you know, it's not perfect, but it's not as bad as it used to be. So I hope I contributed in some tiny way to that shift. You sure did. Hal, take us back a bit. Too. You've had such an interesting career. Did you have a eureka moment or a, a formative period that where you got hooked in and then eventually obsessed with climate policy and, and contributing? I had two that were conjoined. The first was, I don't know if you remember, but when Jimmy Carter was president, he reinstituted selective service registration, the predecessor to the draft. This was after the Vietnam War, where ending the draft was one of the principal goals of every young man. So I had to go, like everybody else, down to the post office and register. And the reason was the military conflicts in the Persian Gulf. Jimmy Carter also allocated $50 billion, which back then was a fair sum of money, for military aimed at the Persian Gulf. So it was was vivid. <laughs> the other side of it, though, is I was really into home construction, solar home construction. 
And I had the opportunity with my brother to build a few solar buildings, including a rather nice solar home. And it wasn't hard. You know, you pay attention to the orientation, to overhangs, to thermal mass, to insulation, to uh, window placement, and so forth. And for roughly zero incremental cost, you get a building that uses almost no energy in a cold climate, high up in the mountains in the Rockies. So if on the one hand, it's that dangerous and stupid to be dependent on fossil fuels, and on the other hand, pretty damn easy to get off of them. Now, this is not for all topics and all quarters, of course. What the hell were we doing? And so it came down to policy. So when I got my graduate degree, I focused more on energy policy than energy technology. Let's talk a little bit about energy innovation, the group uh, you founded and, and lead. It's a climate and energy policy research nonprofit. And I have to say, I've been so impressed with the great uh, research you've all done since I really became familiar with the work about five years ago through my friend and your incredible communications guy, Silvio. I just have to give Silvio a shout out. I was saying before we started recording that the last time I saw you was on a book tour and we were sort of doing a press conference and we were pushing back on the administration and FERC's attempts at the time to prop up coal plants under the guise of resilience. So glad those days are over for now. But tell us how you've grown the organization, the incredible research you're doing. I've played around with the policy simulator, which strikes me as from what I've learned and sense that, uh, you know, you were using that to work with legislators on the Hill to kind of calculate the relative impact of policies that were being debated on the fly up until the very end on that miracle um, Schumer Mansion breakthrough. But so kudos to you, first of all, and your great team. But tell me about energy innovation and how you see the future there with great research. Well, thanks for those kind words, Gil. Energy innovation's principal idea was to give policy design support for policymakers. There are literally hundreds of different policies that affect energy decisions and affect your carbon emissions. And it turns out to be rather complicated to figure out which ones are the best or the most important or the most effective. We started out, I've done a lot of work in China. I've made something like 70 trips to China to work on energy policy issues with them. The first one was refrigerator efficiency standards. Right up there in the boredom sweepstakes. Yeah, the, boy, that's good light yeah. bedtime reading. Exactly. Turns out that if you have very strong refrigerator efficiency standards, it reduces your electricity appetite more than three Three Gorges dams, the biggest hydroelectric facility in the world. It also turns out that if you do this analysis and present it properly with technical grounding, engineer to engineer, to the right people in China, they adopt those refrigerator standards. At the near top level, China's dominated by technocrats, and they want solutions. So they see energy policy as a technical question rather than a strategic one, at least for many, many decisions. So this got us going, doing more and more work across Europe and the US and China on what are the best policy choices. Then I was asked a question by a minister in China, tell me which policies can reduce carbon the fastest and at the lowest cost. And I said, that's the best question I've ever heard in my life. Let me see what we can do. So we hired this, we had hired on our staff, this brilliant guy named Jeffrey Rissman. He analyzed 50 different models to determine which one could answer that question. And we discovered there were none of them in the world. They had to be open source models uh, and they had to have integrity, structural integrity. So Jeff, without any hubris, but with incredible determination, set out to build that model. And building an energy model is a, multi-million dollar, multi-year process. So Jeff worked it through. We ended up with a, a model that you can adjust up to 100 different policies and it tells you in real time what happens to CO2, to 11 other pollutants, to cash flow and to mortality. And it turns out policymakers really want this. They can adjust policies and get different outcomes. And so, and we encourage that. We made everything open source. So people could post their results and see how they did compared to others. It found its way into the hands of many members of the House Select Committee on Climate Change. More and more governors got into it. We started doing it for other nations. We've done it for about a dozen other nations as well. And again, we're not there to push a particular policy. We're there to enable rationality in choosing policies. And that's something policymakers love. Not all of them. <laughs> right. 
and credibility when the claims come out, right? Otherwise, it's exactly. back of the napkin. And, you know, what's the point of this yeah. policy? Will it achieve its goals? Yes. That's a simple question. So we've then expanded on that work with um, probably 100 different papers on specific policy questions, really complicated questions. How do you build a renewables intensive grid that's more reliable than a coal or oil or gas intensive grid, for example? Um, what's the role of hydrogen in the future economy? What about these learning curves? How far will they go? How fast will they go? What's the potential for offshore wind? These are all questions that need objective analyses. And so we set out to do our best. Quickly, uh, let's talk about the big climate law that passed this summer, the Inflation Reduction Act, and a few months out, how you're thinking about what we need to do to realize the promise of it. Your book obviously offers a, a key part of that prescription. There's a lot of work to be done on the important but wonkery aspects of Treasury guidance and implementation, but uh, yeah, broad strokes, tell us how you're thinking about that uh, potentially transformational law if, if we realize its potential. Those are the two right words, potential and transformation. So most of the money is allocated through tax credits for solar panels, hydrogen, things like that, wind turbines. And that just changes their financial advantage. It improves their financial position vis-a-vis -vis other competitors. They've put conditions on those tax credits, though, that, for example, super expensive cars don't get them. Cars without uh, mostly North American content don't get them. So there's a bunch of other goals that are embedded in those tax credits, the type of batteries that are in there and so on. So not every electric car is going to be eligible for a subsidy or a full subsidy. I think that's a pretty clever way to do policy because you don't have to build a new bureaucracy. You have it. It's called the auto dealers. <laughs> You're taking advantage of existing structures and the tax collector. And so that's the bulk of the money is tax credits, including for solar and wind and for electric vehicles. Then there are some specific investments for things like battery development, hydrogen development, advanced manufacturing, and so forth. And those are going to stress out the Department of Energy, which has to implement most of them in record time. But that's what I call a high quality problem. I think the bill will be transformative. It will drive prices down. It will create market certainty. It's got a 10 year horizon. You can build a business case around a 10 year horizon that you can't build around a two year horizon. But it is going to put pressure on the, F the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to act a lot more quickly in approving all these hookups. Modernize our grid to fit, yeah, to fit this massive yes. build out. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, but it's also the process and same with the process for permits, for construction permits, environmental permits and so forth and off-take agreements. So I would say we have every opportunity now to make a huge dent in climate change, but also many booby traps that we're going to have to avoid as we go that way. Justin, you want to offer any thoughts? I mean, you were coming onto the beat, I think, right after the failure of the last time we tried to do a federal climate bill and Waxman Markey and nine. I mean... What's your your take? Yeah, it it is interesting. I mean, one lesson out of that is that the idea that the economists are really stuck on that sort of pricing, you know, pollution, pricing carbon is the only way. That's that I think that's just been disproven in our politics, right? You know, it's been a complete non-starter in American politics for 30 years now, and when finally Congress comes along offering carrots instead of sticks, we get it passed, right? I, I think, you know, we're going to have to do this with mostly carrots, not sticks, in the American political context and political dynamic. The other thing I would say about this law is people need to realize this, this may need to be defended depending on what happens in the election this fall. You know, if the Republicans take the House and the Senate, they will go after this law They'll try to defund it. Biden can, you know, use his veto in defense of in defense of the law. But I, you know, just the assumption that it's like absolutely there for ten years, and uh, you know, we don't have to do anything else. I think is just wrong. I think people need to be gearing up, you know, for a potential battle just to keep it on the books or to keep it adequately funded. Uh, you know, not all the money that's in that's you know nominally in the bill has been allocated yet, so. There's going to be budget fights uh, down the road. So, you know, this is not the time for people to kind of declare victory and relax and say, OK, we can go home now because it's all done. 
And, you know, as Hal alluded to, you know, Congress made the economics better, but it didn't sweep away a lot of these other, you know, non-economic barriers that are slowing us down. The pay, you know, the slow pace of the environmental approvals. It didn't fix that problem. It didn't fix the, you know, routing new power lines problem. It didn't fix the build out of the grid problem, although there, there is some stuff in the bill that should help. But we need to respond to this bill by going back at this whole set of issues at the state and local level and working hard on those problems and trying to clear away some of the other barriers that are slowing us down. I think you're right. And also in, in the making sure the implementation that these credits get used as fast as possible before 24 and that we can start to see that massive extra growth for uh, clean energy above business as usual in a scenario where middle of the decade, let's say 2025, it's it's a, a trifecta of Republicans when the I think the real threat most pronounced will come first. And maybe it's about, again, making these industries bigger, stronger, more politically influential to, to fight back on the inevitable pushback. Yeah, a lot of these battery factory that announcements that I talked about, this stuff is happening in red states. We know that, I mean, wind power, for example, is already huge in, you know, it's much bigger in red America than in blue America, essentially. And so there's a tremendous economic development and rural development opportunity here that, you know, once it gets going, I think will work to the benefit of a lot of these Republican-led states. And so I hope we get to a point where, you know, a few years down the road, they don't see political gain in trying to kill it, right? You know, basically we have a head of steam on these changes and and people are seeing the local benefits so that it becomes, you know, locked in and and kind of politically hard to cut. And, you know, we may be, we may be approaching that point already. I mean, the Republicans have been a lot less noisy about this law since it passed than I thought they would be. So, you know, they may already yeah. be sensing that it works to the benefit of their constituents, which it does. Just quickly, one follow-up on on the price on carbon, which is something our company has sort of um, very voraciously was pushing through the last couple of years in the hopes we could get even a nominal carbon price with exceptions rising over time. I mean, the politics of that are, you know, very difficult, hard to see. But on some sense, it strikes me in your book, you guys aren't against a carbon price, um, you know, perhaps in industry, the hard to decarbonize sectors. But if you believe in a carbon price, you know, these carrots for a few more years potentially changes the politics when we have to reevaluate the other ways we're going to incentivize investment by the economy. So do you, do you agree with that? You're not whole cloth against a carbon price, but we got to do what we can continue locally and, and federally. We are for a carbon price. We're just against yeah. making it, you know, the centerpiece and only policy you pursue. Absolutely. And, you know, a tax credit for clean energy is a de facto price on carbon. Works the same way. Just not as efficiently, though, right? Just seeing you know, it's a little more complicated with these big banks. Well, yeah. this this works in a number of ways. I mean, the free market has a lot of its own structural problems as well. I mean, if, if you consider externalities to be part of an efficiency argument. And then renewable portfolio standard creates a shadow price on carbon. Yes. Reducing subsidies for fossils is another way to handle it. So we're doing it. We're just doing it in dribs and drabs rather than comprehensively. But, you know, if you think a price is simple. No, it's not. Go see if you can lift up the U.S. tax code, which I think comes in at 10,000 pages. I know. So, you know, at the end of your book, you include a terrific quote pulled from the ethical teachings and maxims in in the rabbinic Jewish tradition. Could you share the quote from Rabbi Tarfon and your thoughts on it? Yeah, this quote is getting a lot of uh, mileage lately. I have to say people have been using it. There's a whole book out (laughs) that's pegged on the quote. People have been using it in a bunch of different contexts. But, you know, what we sort of invoke at the end of the book is the sort of Jewish ethical precept of tikkun olam, right, which is the duty to repair the world, which people interpret in much the same way that, that Christians interpret their, you know, duty of good works, right? You, you, you obligated sure. to, to go out and try to make things better, right? That's part of our moral obligation as human beings and as citizens. And so, you know, we cite the example in the book of the Jewish kids who, you know, went down to the South in the civil rights era and some of them never came home. The quote is, you know, Rabbi Tarfan is quoted in the collection called the Perkei Avrod and it's something like, 
you are not obligated to finish this work of repairing the world, but neither are you free to desist from it. And we sort of use that in the book as a way to say, look, we, we know this, this is a multi-generational change here. None of us talking about this right now is going to live to see, you know, the last pound of coal burned or the last gallon of gasoline burned, right? It's just, it, it, you know, it's just not going to happen that fast. But we need to be making headway. And, you know, we do have an obligation to sort of future generations. And the point was just to sort of close the book on the idea that this is not all about economics. It's not all about cost and benefit. It's not even all about the asthma and medical problems and stuff like that. It's really about our moral duty to future generations. We, we don't have the right to wreck the planet for people who are going to come after us. And that's what we're doing right now. So... We're saying to people, your obligation as a citizen is to put some energy into this. We're not saying it has to take over your life or be the only thing you do or even the only thing you care about in politics, but it needs to be, it needs to be part of your political dynamic and your political thinking and your political agenda. And that's our appeal. You also, um, I'm not sure if it's in the book, but I've heard you interviewed and you alluded to this quote from Frederick Douglass, um, as well that I loved, um, hadn't heard in a while. This quote is, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and never will. It's sort of the harder edge of that. That also distills what we're saying to people here. You know, if you want to change, make a demand. You know, the American public is still not loud enough on this subject. I mean, there is a climate movement now. There is a demand, but it needs yep. to get louder. It needs to involve more of us. It needs to be a 50-state struggle, not a you know, 15-state struggle, which is what it is right now. And that's where we're trying to go. Excellent. Well, thank you both for the conversation today and, and good luck with the book and all that uh, you both are continuing to do to spread the word on practical and inspiring climate solutions. Thank you. Yeah, Gil, thanks for the opportunity. It's, it's great to have this conversation with you. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify, which really helps us get more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at HannonArmstrong.com. I'm Gil Jenkins, and this is Climate Positive.